0: Anna DeNino, and welcome to the first bonus episode of the Crime Bistro Podcast. This show gazes into the thrillingly twisted world of true crime, examining real cases while we share in a passion for crime and coffee alike. For this episode, I am enjoying an iced black tea, so grab yourself a fresh brew, and let's talk about the psychology behind the twisted mind of a serial killer. Interestingly, the prevalence of serial killers in this century has decreased, but their cultural popularity is still very high. More people are fascinated by the minds of serial killers, including myself, so for this episode I've done some research to share about the psychology of a serial killer and the motivations behind the commission of some of the more sadistic crimes in human history. The first question I want to answer in this episode is what exactly is a serial killer? The term serial murder has only existed since about the 1960s, And it wasn't regularly used until the FBI adopted it in the 1970s, so before the 1960s these crimes were referred to mostly as chain murders or chain killings. The FBI has laid out some markers for defining a serial killer versus a spree killer, and for this a serial killer usually has a minimum of three to four victims, a cooling off period between murders, The victims are usually strangers to the murderer, and typically there is a specific type of victim that a killer seeks. They are generally sadistic and controlling in nature, and they are not motivated by profit, but by psychological needs. Not included in this definition, but common amongst many serial killers, is the committing of murders for a psychological benefit. Killers can be heavily motivated by emotions, and these don't have to be necessarily anger or hatred, but they can also include sadness. Serial killers are most commonly grouped into one of two categories as are outlined by the FBI's crime classification manual. The first of these is organized serial killers, which are killers who plan their crimes methodically. They usually abduct their victims, kill them at one location, and dispose of the body in another location. These killers tend to have good interpersonal skills and can lure their victims by appealing to their sense of sympathy. For an organized killer, their IQ tends to be near the normal range, with the average of organized killers being about 94.7. There is a subtype of this category, organized non-social offenders, which tend to have even higher IQ ratings, with the average being about 99.2. And one famous example of an organized killer is Ted Bundy, who is extremely famous, also Dennis Rader. The second type is a disorganized serial killer, and these types of killers tend to be impulsive, and their murders often are committed with a random weapon that's available to them at the time. They don't usually take steps to hide their victims' bodies, and they are usually unemployed, antisocial, or some combination of the two. These kinds of killers are much less careful and methodical than organized serial killers, and going on with this, they also tend to have slightly lower IQ scores, with the average being about 92.8. A famous example of a disorganized killer would be Jack the Ripper. Serial killers are known for being rational and calculating, which allows them to evade capture for long periods of time. Most serial killers commit their crimes when they are in their 20s through their 40s, and some serial killers show deviant behavior from a young age, some even getting involved with the police in their teenage years for petty crime. Some famous serial killers, including Fred West and Ian Brady, even served shorter sentences before they committed their murders. Studies have shown that over half of convicted serial killers have a past criminal history, with burglary and other petty crimes being some of the most common offenses. Some serial killers have even demonstrated a fascination with the police and even put themselves in the path of cases returning to the scene of a crime, or even helping the police in their investigation by giving anonymous tips and anything in that range. Many serial killers who are brought to justice seem like normal people. They are typically rarely suspected, and the only tells for some can be a quiet nature and social seclusion. However, this isn't universal and some serial killers are not self-isolated and are actually in married or long-term relationships. Some have expressed an urge to kill, as told in a quote from Edmund Kemper, It was an urge, a strong urge, and the longer I let it go, the stronger it got, to where I was taking risks to go out and kill people. Risks that normally, according to my little rules of operation, I wouldn't take because they could lead to arrest. And like I said before, many killers also prey on a specific type of victim. The most common type is a young adult female and serial murders are more likely to kill people that they don't know, selecting their victims based on three things, availability, vulnerability, and desirability. One of the next most common questions regarding serial killers is what role does childhood play in the forming of a serial killer? People are not born with a serial killer gene. Their actions come down to their personality and traits, which is heavily influenced by the way that they are raised. This is a quote from Jim Clement on the factors that contribute to someone being a serial killer. Quote, genetics loads the gun, their personality and psychology aim it, and their experiences pull the trigger, end quote. A 2000 report by Dr. Richard Davidson at the University of Wisconsin compared neuroimaging studies of convicted murderers with non-murderers and found a lack of brain activity in the areas that control emotional outbursts, violent emotions, and fear responses in the convicted killers that he studied. While this is important, it is also important to understand that it is in no way guaranteed that differences in brain structure in individuals will result in murder. A 1990 study on incarcerated serial killers concluded that the most influential factor contributing to their homicidal activity was some sort of environmental problem during their childhood and that nearly half of those serial killers had experienced physical or sexual abuse when they were young. In addition to this, the study also found that more than half of these killers had experienced emotional neglect in their childhoods. Children who do not receive an adequate amount of affection or physical attention can develop psychopathic tendencies or even become violent. Children who are developing that show a large amount of anger can also later show violent tendencies and early signs of becoming a serial killer can show by the time a person is only four years old. According to studies conducted on children who become violent, lack of attention as a child makes up only a small percentage of the reason that children become killers, and childhood abuse takes up a much larger percentage. Children who are abused by their fathers have been shown to find men who resemble their fathers and abuse them in turn later on in life. And these kinds of killers tend to be motivated by anger or by sadness due to the emotional scarring from their own abuse. So to that point, it is definitely important to know that sadness over anger can sometimes be a primary motivation for someone who later becomes a serial killer. On the matronly side, if a mother is inattentive to their child, that child can become introverted and harsh, which can lead to self-isolation in which violent fantasies can become a source of gratification. These killers are primarily motivated by a sense of not wanting to be judged any longer by their loved ones, and in turn they have very low self-esteem and they tend to feel like they aren't accepted by anyone. Serial killers can suffer from a sense of abandonment or even attachment disorder. Almost every serial killer has a primary motive, and most of these can be traced back to childhood experiences and mental states. Peter Vronsky, who has done extensive research on development and its impact on murderers, has suggested that serial killers are not made, but rather that the majority of people are unmade by good parents and and socialization. He believes that people who have been socialized are left with the capacity to kill. And a lot of this information is really sad and can be pretty scary, However, it is widely recognized that the majority of people who survived traumatic childhoods did not become serial killers, and that there are many more complex factors at play. Another important question to discuss here is what are the different motives of serial killers? Motives can be as simple as anger or as complex as the fear of rejection by a specific age group. However, the most common motives fall into one of four categories, which were outlined according to a study done at Radford University and FGCU. The first of these is called visionary, and these killers generally suffer from severe mental illnesses and have lost touch with reality. So their delusions, hallucinations can drive them to commit murder, and this makes up about 1% of motives for serial killers. The second is power or control. These killers seek control over others to overcome feelings of powerlessness or inadequacy in their own lives. It is typical for this type of killer to sexually abuse a victim, but this is usually not motivated by lust and instead by a desire to exercise more control over their victims. And this motive plays a part in about 40% of serial killers. The third most popular motive that has been identified is mission-oriented. And these killers typically target people that they deem deem undesirable and that they feel they are justified in eliminating those people. These victims tend to be from either a different race, religion, or sexual orientation, but these killers can also target people they deem to be immoral, immoral, such as prostitutes and drug users. And this plays a role in about 12% of serial killer motives. The fourth type is hedonistic killers, who are people who kill just for the thrill of it. And there are three subtypes of this motive that have been identified by forensic psychologists, lust, thrill, and comfort. And this hedonistic motive applies to about 50% of serial killers who have been identified. So just to dive into this a little bit more, because hedonistic killers are the most populated category, This killer gets a natural high from the act of taking a life that they find to be addicting, and their appetite for violence grows over time, eventually becoming insatiable. Most of the time, these types of killers start by killing smaller animals, and when they realize that they derive pleasure from it, they will start to kill more often, eventually this escalates to killing larger animals and eventually to killing humans. And while there are some statistically outlined motives, emotion is one that can fall outside of these categories. There are certain people who experience a strong rush of emotion who don't know how to express it, and in turn express it violently. However, these kinds of serial killers tend to regret their actions because they didn't expect to become a murderer. And keeping on the topic of regret, the next question that I want to dive into is do serial killers feel remorse? And the answer to this is pretty complex, and it's really just that it depends on the individual who commits the crime, so there are a wide varieties of answers to this question. If a killer only commits one murder, they tend to be much more likely to turn themselves in or to feel regret for what they have done. This is most seen in a profile known as personal killers. Personal killers are people who only commit one murder and the person that they kill is someone that they know. So it makes sense that they would tend to feel a bit more remorse than a serial killer or someone who is a psychopath, in which that psychopathic disorder can help them block out guilt. An example of this is shown in a quote from serial killer Ted Bundy, who said, quote, I don't feel guilty for anything. I feel sorry for people who feel guilt, End quote. Many serial killers also demonstrate a lack of the moral and social code that is inherent in society. So from what we know based on the research that people have done about serial killers and remorse, they don't tend to show it, and they don't tend to even admit that they believe what they did was wrong, which connects well to the demonstration of the lack of moral and social code. And for that reason, that is why a lot of serial killers do become self-isolated and exist more on the fringes of society than other people. In order to provide some more helpful context, I'm going to talk a little bit more about Ted Bundy because he is an example that really fits the typical profile that we've outlined of a serial killer. Ted Bundy kidnapped, sexually assaulted, and murdered young women, all of whom had very similar physical characteristics, and he was active from 1974 to 1978 across seven different states. Ted Bundy was highly intelligent, and he was also involved in a long-term relationship during the time he was committing his murders. He was around 28 when he first began killing people, which falls within the typical age range, and most of his victims were young adult females in their late teens to early 20s. He frequently lured his victims by wearing a plaster cast and pretending he required help, which demonstrates a good understanding of interpersonal skills and really well fits in with the profile of an organized serial killer. And he also fits the organized serial killer profile in that he typically kidnapped his victims before he killed them. Ted Bundy was arrested within a week of killing his last victim, Kimberly Leach, on February 8th of 1978, and while he was on death row, he confessed to 36 different murders. Interestingly, in this case, experts believe that this number could actually be much higher, and some have estimated that it's even as high as 100 different victims. And this is something that I haven't talked about in this episode yet, but something I definitely want to touch on is female serial killers. Throughout the episode, I've talked about the typical profile fitting a a male serial killer, but about 15% of all serial killers who have been convicted are women. Female serial killers are much less prevalent, however they do have some features that arguably make them better at serial killing than their male counterparts, and they tend to be identified as serial killers a lot less, or after a specific, much longer period of time has passed. The typical female serial killer starts committing their crimes at a later age, typically this is around 30 years old, and they are much more likely to use poison as opposed to a physically violent weapon. They tend to seek out victims in people that they know, and they tend to have longer careers, are much likely to get caught, even though they're killing people who are in close proximity to them. And this is because killing someone using a method such as poison can be much harder to identify over time, especially since some women serial killers have been in positions such as nurses or in home carers. And to provide an example of a female serial killer who fits this profile, is Jesch Gottfried, who killed 15 people, all of whom were under her care, with arsenic in Germany between 1813 and 1837, so that's a very significant period of time that she was committing these murders over. She mixed the poison in with her victims' food, and the victims did include people who were extremely close to her in her immediate family, including her parents, two husbands, a fiancé, and even her own children and she was only caught when a would-be victim noticed white granules in his food and took the food to his doctor to examine, at which point they found out that it was in fact arsenic. Another thing that I want to cover before ending this episode is simply, why are people so fascinated by serial killers? And to answer this, according to an article by David Schmidt for History News, American engagement with the subject of serial killers has its roots way back with the famed Jack the Ripper murders that took place in England in 1888, and the subject became even more popular in America when America's first serial killer broke headlines. This was H.H. H. Holmes, who was caught in 1894. Part of the fascination with serial killers is tied to the media coverage around Ted Bundy especially because he outwardly seemed to personify the American ideal. He was handsome, he was charming, he was educated in a long-term relationship, he had a job, and there was a very clear disconnect between his appearance and the reality of what people thought that serial killers were that was fascinating for a lot of people who followed his case all the way through up until his death. Another reason for our fascination with serial killers is the manner in which mass media and law enforcement work together to provide information about serial murder that is both thrilling and educational. And what I mean by this is that even if audiences felt guilty for interest in these crimes, the media assured them that it was acceptable that they had these quote-unquote guilty pleasures because while they were consuming the serial killer news and those pop culture articles, they were simultaneously learning about psychology and law enforcement procedure, and they were following cases from the beginning when the serial killer was apprehended all the way through their trials and convictions. These two points are just one person's opinion, and besides this article, many others have put forth their own theories for our interest in serial murders. One of these is the thrill that true crime content can provide, when people are watching the spectacle of a serial killer, especially following it through the news, they can get a jolt of adrenaline, and true crime has a way of triggering fear and horror within a controlled environment, within the safety of your own home, in your car, where there's no real threat to you physically. And finally, people tend to crave insight into a world that we do not understand. It gives a sense of awareness into what goes on in the world outside of our own social circles, and it gives an alternative view of reality for a lot of people. And for people like myself, and for those of you who are listening to this, who are highly interested in the psychology that can go behind these kind of cases, and to give us a little bit of an alternate view into someone's head and into someone else's life, I think that this reason tends to be the most relevant in terms of why people have become so fascinated not only by serial killers, but by following true crime cases in general throughout the years. So while this episode has covered the known common characteristics of serial killers, each one is still absolutely unique in their own respect. From a profile such as this, and even from the vast amount of anecdotal evidence that we have to present an image of the mind of these criminals, There is still much to be discovered in this area. That being said, criminologists and psychologists have done a really good job to date of researching those aspects of a person's brain that drive an individual to kill, and a lot of the studies that I've mentioned in this episode are studies that are continuous, and there are a lot of new pieces of information that are coming out constantly. This is a topic which I find completely fascinating, and it has so many different twists and turns that from this knowledge base, we can only continue to learn more and expand on the topic. With that, however, this episode is going to be coming to a close, so if you are interested in learning more, all of the source materials are going to be listed on the podcast website at crimebistro.com. And be sure to support the podcast on Instagram, at Crime Bistro Podcast for some behind-the-scenes looks at some exciting cases that are going to be coming up soon. Thank you so much for listening to this bonus episode, and as always, until next time.